0: thank you for allowing me to come here this morning and speak with everyone. I want to say, uh, extend a greeting from the North Little Rock meeting to everyone here. I also want to thank everyone that signed the card and sent it to me and my family for the loss of my sister over the last week. I appreciate that. Um, those things are uplifting and strengthening. I want to speak about a subject this morning concerning the centurion. And before I get started, though, I wonder, you know, when uh, Chico was talking about some of those st- statistics that that uh, about poverty and so on, and he ended up with talking about those that believe. I don't know how many trillion or billion people there are in the world, but if you think of how many there are and how many... Have the truth. I don't know what that percentage is, but it didn't have a calculator to do it and I sure can't do it into my head. But if you think of that small percentage and how blessed we are to have a correct understanding of God's word, it should humble all of us. If we can turn to Matthew chapter eight, I'm going to read verses five through 13. As we read these verses, I want want us to try to consider a few things. Consider the company or the people in which this took place. Consider the concern of the slave, of a slave by his master. Consider Jesus' willingness to overcome or to come with him. Consider the humbleness shown by the Roman soldier. Consider the faith in the ability of Christ to perform this act. Think about his recognition of the command that Christ had over the spirit power. Consider the reaction of Jesus to the words of the centurion. Consider his reaction as he turns back. With his response, and consider the account as a parable for our approach to God through Christ and prayer. Reading Matthew eight verses five through thirteen, and when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, "Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented." Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, to this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go, and it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Who were the centurions? They were Gentiles. They were Roman. They were soldiers. They were leaders of men. If we look at Easton's Bible Dictionary, he states so that a centurion was a Roman officer in command of a hundred men. Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, was a centurion. He lists a number of verses here of other centurions mentioned. He goes on to say, A centurion watched the crucifixion of our Lord in Matthew 27, 54. And when he saw the wonders attending it, exclaimed, Truly, this Man was the Son of God. The centurions mentioned in the New Testament are uniformly spoken of in terms of praise, whether in the Gospels or in the Acts. It is interesting to compare this with the statement of Paulus, that the centurions were chosen by merit. And so were men remarkable, not so much for their daring courage as for their deliberation and constancy, and strength of mind. And that's out of Easton's Bible Dictionary. Blunt speculates, perhaps in this well-regulated Roman armies, the more intelligent and orderly soldiers were promoted to this command. Perhaps, too, their rank and position, not much removed from that of the teachers of the gospel, might lead these officers to sympathize with them and with their cause. Let's consider a few other mentions of the centurions in scripture. In Acts 21, if we turn to verse 31, Acts 21 31, this is speaking of Paul. And as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band, and all of Jerusalem was in an uproar, who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down unto them. And when they had saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating Paul. Again, in Paul's case, if we turn to Acts 25 and 25. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. So again, here's the centurion in, in, in the act of saving Paul. They were also, they were, they were shown to listen and reason with Paul in the account of the shipwreck in Acts 27. At verse 30, we read, And as the the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship when they had let down the boat into the sea, under color as they would have cast anchors out of the ship. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off. Here they were willing to listen to Paul and cut away the lifeboats out of the ship. The centurion still wanted to preserve Paul. In verse 42 says, that the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept him from their purpose, and commanded that they which should swim should cast themselves first in the sea and get to land. Okay, this is just a few verses, and there's many other concerning the centurions, and they're mentioned in Scripture. If we go back to the account in Matthew 8, Five as we began with this morning. Let's consider the company that was with Christ at this occasion. There were most likely Jews from the surrounding areas. There have been a few Gentiles, there may have been a few Gentiles along with them because of the news of the healings that had taken place. But most likely the majority would have been Jews because of Christ's mission to the lost household as we read in Matthew 15 and 24 and 28. A Gentile would most likely feel out of place and especially a Roman soldier, unless he had official business there. This may be one of the reasons for sending the Jewish friends ahead to petition Christ on behalf of his servant. We see a difference in the accounts of Matthew and that of Luke concerning who personally spoke to Christ. Now, this can't be an inconsistency in the Scriptures, so there must be a reason behind it. In Matthew, it states that the centurion spoke to and was answered directly to by Christ. The account in Luke states that the Jewish elders came to Jesus directly. Going on the truth that the Scriptures are inspired, I believe that both accounts are correct. That the centurion's humbleness caused him to seek the Jewish elders to Christ on his behalf, but following them close behind, and when Christ came towards his home, he began to send he, he again sent his friends to ask him not to be bothered with coming into his home. Now in speculating Christ knew the heart of this man and may have affixed his attention to him standing near. The conversation would have then been between Christ and the centurion himself. Robert Roberts seems to agree with this reasoning and makes a statement saying of the centurion, who appears to have come on behalf of the friends he sent. Consider that only these two books contain the account of the centurion speaking with Christ. The kingly book, or Matthew, of the soldiers speaking directly to Christ and the human, or man, Luke, speaking through the Jews. In these few words, we have a wealth of information on the man coming to Christ in faith. Here is a man of authority in the world, probably of great strength, trained in warfare, Yet he comes on behalf of his servant or his slave. He does not come in a manner that most people would think that a man in his position would approach. But in a most humbling way, he didn't put himself above the Jewish people, but regarded them as friends. The fact that the Jewish elders were willing to come on his behalf is also revealing of his treatment of them and their respect of them. Why would a Roman soldier build a synagogue for the Jews unless he had some knowledge of their hope? On his behalf, they stated, he loves our nation. They also said, he is worthy for you to grant this to him. So here we have a powerful man in the world. His concern for his servant must have been more than just worrying of the loss of a good worker. He most likely would have the means to replace him if necessary. This was more of his concern for the slave's welfare than that of the centurion's own personal goals. He was asking for relief from the torment of sickness. His petition was solely on behalf of another, his slave, With the asking of the elders, Jesus started on his way to grant his request, willing to leave the multitude there with him, but was stopped by him saying he was not worthy for him to come into his house. We have to stop and remind ourselves that this was a Roman soldier of some rank. He further states that all that was needed was for Christ just to say the word, And my servant will be healed. This was a statement of the faith in this man Christ, that he was also who he said he was, and that he had the power at his command to accomplish what he willed. This shows to me that he understood that the things done by Christ were not some kind of magic trick, or trickery done so often by the others in false religions. He understood this power to be from the Father that Christ had spoken of. Now this is evident in the next statement. For I also am a man under authority. As he states in verse 9. He recognized that power was from God. And that Christ was given the authority to command its use. The next statement by Christ is what sets this account out in Scripture to be recognized. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled. Now here we have the Son of God marveling at a centurion statement. This was an amazing thing in his dealings with the nation of Israel. Here was a man not of the Jews that exhibited the faith that he had been seeking and speaking of. Here was that childlike faith from a soldier He then turned from speaking to the soldier and spoke to those from the nation of Israel. He had a message to relay to them before continuing on with the soldier's request. He spoke of the contrast of the faith exhibited by the Gentile in relation to his own people. He mentioned their forefathers that they had relied so much upon for their boasting against the Gentiles and pointing out, that those who would come from afar to be with them in the kingdom. He spoke of those that relied on their natural bloodline, the sons of the kingdom, would be cast out and not be with the faithful. The two reactions from this casting out are spoken of as weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are two opposite reactions to their rejection. It shows two ways of thinking and two hearts within them. One, the weeping, brings to mind sorrow as if a reaction is brought about by the realization that they have squandered away the chance of inheritance. They were sorely humbled by this realization. They will be sorry about their actions but will not be able to change what has passed. If they had the chance over again, they might be more willing to do those things spoken of in Scripture that would prepare them spiritually for the kingdom that they could now see but not be a part of. We turn to Matthew 7 and read from verse 21. Now everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. but He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. The other reaction, gnashing of teeth, brings to mind one that is angry and bitter. We can see those that feel that they should be given an entrance into the kingdom, but are unfairly, in their thinking, being denied from what was rightfully theirs. No humbleness in it is exhibited, just pride. We can see how they would cast insults and curse those who are granted entrance most likely speaking boldly and arrogantly against the righteous judge. They will exhibit their true character that keeps them from following God's will, and their true heart will become evident to all those looking on. Unlike the weeping, their stubbornness keeps them from realizing the magnitude of the judgment handed down. This brings to mind the parable of the Pharisee and the publican in Luke chapter 18, starting with verse 9. And he spake this parable unto a certain, unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I'm not like other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as the publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that is humbled himself shall be exalted. Both of these will be cast into the same outer darkness, those that are weeping, those gnashing of teeth, void of true light. They will have no hope and will perish knowing that they have lived in vain. They will be able to see those around them that they had known, rewarded for their faith in the promises made, but will be truly separated from them. If we go back to the account of the centurion, Christ then turns back to the centurion who prompted his remarks and announces that it would be done as he had believed. His faith must have been complete for we have an account of his servant being healed that very moment. This miracle of healing was focused more on the teaching of Christ than on the healing of the servant. In many other accounts of Christ healing the sick, The Holy Spirit power was the sinner. Here we have the healing of the sick as almost secondary to the open show of faith of the person requesting help. The majority of those present would have not seen the servant healed, but would have witnessed the truth expounded by Jesus. They would ponder the words spoken and most probably have been compelled to examine their motives and faith. I suppose that a few of those present would have mocked the words of Christ concerning the centurion, whether openly or secretly, and would have fallen into the example of the persons gnashing their teeth in the future. Now if we stand back and look at this whole account, we say, we see many lessons. One that could be brought out is the approaching of the faithful. We in this age cannot walk up to the son of God. And speak to him face to face as we spoke of in our class this morning. We don't have the ability to see God or to even walk up to Christ as the apostles did. We can't send Jewish elders to personally petition on our behalf. We can't receive an immediate answer to our request. But in this age, we do have the Son of God always present to us through prayer. We can think upon the lessons of this account to help us in our approach to God, for help in the small, to the large concerns in our daily walk. The centurion had the correct motivation. His petition was not petty or self-centered. The request was for another in need of help that he could not give personally, but could only be granted by God. We must realize our dependence on Yahweh. And that if we ask in faith, it will be granted. He approached in a humble manner, and we must humble ourselves before prayer, knowing that we ourselves can do nothing without God giving us the ability. The centurion realized that it was Christ that had the ability to grant his request, and only if he was willing We must approach in prayer with the realization that it be according to Yahweh's will and prepare to accept that will. We can be assured that we have a mediator between Yahweh and us that is now at the right hand of God. We are told to pray without ceasing. Does this mean only at large problems? Does it mean only when our backs are against the wall, so to speak? or does it mean always ready to approach God in praying for guidance and help in all aspects of our lives? If we are to always be prepared to approach in prayer, are we also at all times to be exhibiting the characteristics that we have spoken of concerning the approach of the faithful? Always having the correct motivation, always to have concern for others, always showing humbleness, always having faith, always with his will in mind, always willing to accept his will. Thank you.